So on the way down here, you know how you, you leave with plenty of time, and we were going to get, we had an hour of cushion time, and then we hit Birmingham, and there went that hour, and we got here with three minutes to spare. It was great. Um, anyway, so I, I guess, I don't know if you can make Birmingham a verb, but I'm going to do it and say we got Birminghammed on the way down here tonight. I want to thank you guys for being halfway to the beach from Henderson, because when Billy asked me to speak, I, I thought, you know what? If I'm going to drive four and a half hours, why might I? Why shouldn't I just drive the extra three hours to the coast? And so, thank you for a little trip for me and my wife. We dumped the kids off at my parents' house on the way down, and man, when we're, when this is over, we're heading heading to the coast. So you're in a great location from Henderson, and I'm thankful for that. I was just talking to Billy. We were talking about how difficult and how weird the past year has been, and I'm guessing that like like the church that I preach at, you went. You went virtual last March, and that was kind of a weird thing to do. I guess not last March, but a year ago, March. And that was such a weird time, a necessary time, and just a, again, just a weird time. Where I preach is kind of out in a rural setting, and our internet is not fast enough for us to live stream. And so during that time especially, we didn't go to the building to film or live stream or anything like that. We all made our own videos at home and then sent those in, and our editor pieced them all together and made a nice worship video, but we couldn't do it live, which meant I didn't have to go to the church building on Sunday mornings to preach, and so I got a kind of a special time with my family for a couple of months. And you probably remember those couple of months or however long it was for you when you worshiped from home and had a video and all that kind of stuff. And though it wasn't ideal, there were some things about that that I still miss. I have to be honest, I miss... I miss going to church in, in a t-shirt and shorts. As a preacher, don't get to do that very often. Um, I miss, I have to admit, I miss sleeping in. As a preacher, Sunday mornings are the earliest mornings of the week for us. It's a 5.30 in the morning morning for me. And so for two and a half months, it's probably once in a lifetime thing, got to sleep in a little bit more on Sunday morning than usual. I, I miss the homemade communion bread, especially with the styrofoam that we're, we're using still today. Uh, I miss that homemade communion bread, and though, again, it wasn't ideal, I miss that special time with family. Uh, I hope we don't ever have to do that again, but that was a special time for my wife and my two kids and me to, to worship together for a couple of months, just the four of us like that. And again, it's not ideal, but there's some things about that time that I won't miss. I will not miss making, making sermons on video for multiple reasons. I'd rather be in person talking to you like this, but I... I would, I would film and I would readjust and adjust that camera. It felt like a hundred times and I'd start and I'd mess up and I'd start over again. I hated it. So I was so glad when I didn't have to make those little videos anymore. That was just, that was hard on me and it was just difficult to do and I didn't particularly like it. And so I like being in person. So that wasn't very much fun. So there's some things about that that I didn't necessarily like. And one of the things that happened that was kind of weird during that virtual time is that I got... I'm going to call it this. I got the preaching yips. Any of you guys know what the yips are? Yeah, in fact, you may have heard what the yips are just in the past few weeks. So the yips are when an athlete can no longer do the thing that he always could do. And you're talking about usually a professional athlete that is super good at what he does. He's always been able to do it. And then all of a sudden, for no good reason, he can't do it anymore. If you're a baseball fan, maybe you remember when Chuck Knobloch happened to him as a second baseman several years ago. And here's an easy throw from second base, and he couldn't make the throw anymore. It was called the yips. 
The gymnastics form of the yips is called the twisties. And for Simone Biles, it meant she couldn't figure out how to land anymore. The thing that she had landed so many times, all of a sudden, she couldn't do it anymore. And there was no good reason she couldn't explain it. She just couldn't do it. And for me, during that virtual time, I got the preaching yips. And this thing that I'd done for several years and didn't get nervous about it, all of a sudden, after those two and a half months of just preaching in front of a camera, I didn't feel like I could preach anymore without some sort of teleprompter in front of me. And I remember the first Sunday that we went back, actually I went and did a guest speaking thing, and I remember thinking, I don't know if I can do this now. This is weird and different, and all of a sudden I've got to talk to people, and I'm not going to have my teleprompter right there. I don't know if I can do this. I wonder if during that same period of time, if we didn't get a form of the church yips. If for two and a half months we did it virtually, and for no good reason, we forgot how to do that thing that we'd always done. And it always just come naturally, and it'd been easy, and we'd always done it. But all of a sudden, it was difficult for us to do in-person relationships. And for some folks, I think it became difficult to really be engaged with the church with this. And so they had trouble with, with commitment. I wonder, during those two and a half months, and really since then, when we've kind of gone in and out and done things differently, if we've got a little bit of case, a little bit of a case of the commitment or church commitment yips, and all of a sudden church commitment is challenging for us. Really, the virtual world that we live in has changed commitment, hasn't it? We live in a, a world where commitment is different because of all of the technology and all of the virtual things that we do. Fifteen years ago, a friend was someone that I knew, saw on a regular basis, connected with sometimes, and had some level of commitment to. Now, I have thousands of friends. Hundreds of them, I, I don't even know. You ever had this scenario happen where you meet somebody and you say, oh, I think we're friends on Facebook. And you'd never met the person until that moment, but somehow you're friends. That's not a real high level of commitment. It's not a, it's not a real friendship, is it? I think about the commitment that we make by the way we spend our money at stores. I don't have to commit to any local business. They don't have to depend on me because commitment is a lot about dependability, isn't it? If I made a commitment to somebody, they can depend on me. With the virtual world, I just buy everything online and I don't have to make any commitment to a store where they depend on my business. And man, I can't imagine what it's like to date in this virtual world. When I was in high school, AOL instant messaging came out. Some of you probably remember this. And I remember communicating with some girls in high school on, on I, 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 I am them. And that was often a failure, right? But I can't imagine what it's like today with texting and Snapchat and all the different ways people communicate. And it's really, really difficult then to develop a relationship. And you can do all of that with very little commitment. And that's not even to bring up all of the sexually explicit stuff that can happen in those virtual settings, again, with absolutely no commitment. And so the virtual world in which we live has changed commitment. And I'm afraid it's affected the way we think about and the way we do church. And here's kind of the scenario that I think of. Think about someone in a large city like this. And, or a medium-sized city. Um, or even, it really doesn't matter where they're at. 
And they've got several church options, and several churches have good online options. And so it's easy for them to say, you know what, I'm, I like what they do online, and I'm going to watch their services online. And then I'm going to kind of shop around and watch for the biggest and best events that a church has. So whichever church has the coolest VBS, I'm going to take my kids there. And then I may pop into church here and there just enough to soothe my conscience, but I'm going to do a lot of virtual stuff and never fully commit to the Lord by committing to a local church. Let me say that again because I think it's important. One of the ways that we commit to the Lord is by committing to a local church. And in the virtual world in which we live, it's easy to think that we've committed to the Lord, but then never commit to a local church. Now let me be clear. I am so thankful for what we've been able to do virtually over the past year and a half. And what we continue to do virtually. We've upped our game and we've reached people across the globe. What you're doing tonight and what you've done with, with your website and the videos that you put online can reach people all over the world. And because of what we're able to do virtually, there have been people who needed to stay home. And as someone closely connected to an immunocompromised person, man, I get it and I understand that what we've done has been important and we have, we've been able to feed people spiritually who might have starved otherwise. So I'm really, really thankful for what we've been able to do virtually. The problem with it is, the potential problem with it is, it's easy to go through the motions of virtual church and virtual worship and not be fully committed. Here's the problem. Here's how I've noticed it over the past year and a half, even at a deeper level. A year and a half ago, uh, the church where I preach at, we get several freed students, and so there were, there were about 40 of them that graduated. Well, they, they got basically had to go home. Y'all remember that? They went home um, in March of 2020, and then they graduated. And over the past year, as I've seen them, I've, I see them a different place here and there, and I'll say, hey, so where are you going to church now that you've moved to Memphis or Nashville or Birmingham? And several of them have kind of sheepishly looked at me and said, well, we're, we're still kind of watching Stantonville online, and, and, and we visited here. It seems like a pretty good church. And basically what's happened is, because of all of the virtual options, and because it's been really difficult to make connections in local churches over the past year and a half, they've not committed anywhere. Now, I think that most of them will. These are good kids, and so they're going to say, all right, we gotta, we got to connect and get, get involved in a local church. But because of all of the virtual options and because it's been weird to be a guest in a church where you can't, at least for a while, you couldn't recognize anybody's faces, it was difficult for them to make this full commitment in a virtual world, especially for kids who've grown up in a virtual world. So how do we deal with this? What does full commitment look like in our virtual world? To help us wrestle with this tension a little bit, I want to look at two passages. All right, so we're not going to be flipping all over the place, jumping in here and there. Two places. So turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Obviously, if you've been in church very long, you know the context here. We're talking about this big moment in the history of the church when Peter preaches the good news of Jesus in its entirety for the first time. Lots and lots of people who are in Jerusalem for Pentecost believe this message and are baptized, 3,000 of, of them in fact. What are you going to do with 3,000 brand new Christians? 
Surely, at, with that kind of a, a massive moment and massive growth, a bunch of them just aren't going to be very committed, right? Well, watch what happens. We're picking up in verse 42. So Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, we could just stop right there and say, this sounds like a pretty committed group of folks, doesn't it? They devote themselves. They're all in to the apostles' teaching, the Word of God. The teach, the fellowship, their connection with one another, the breaking of bread and the prayer. So they're all in just from the get-go. We'll keep reading verse 43. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Again, that sounds like some folks who are fully committed to what they're involved in. They're sharing everything they have. Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added their number day by day, those who were being saved. As I read what it was like in the days following Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, it sounds like we've got some folks who are fully committed. They're devoted to the Word and they're devoted to the fellowship and the, and the breaking of bread and praise. They're all in there sharing with one another. And as you read through the book of Acts, and we'll look at a few more verses here in just a second, it kind of sounds like if you're going to be one of these earliest Christians, you don't have a choice but to be completely devoted. You don't have a choice to be, to, but, but to be all in. Here's why. To be a follower of Jesus in Acts chapter 2 and following, meant that you might have to pay the ultimate price. It meant that you were going to sacrifice something. And here's the deal. People don't sacrifice for things that they're not fully devoted to. Now, if you're fully devoted to something, you're willing to sacrifice. If you're all in on a hobby, you're, you're, ready to drop, you're willing to drop some money on it, aren't you? But if you're kind of like, eh, I don't know, you're, you're pretty a little more careful with it. We're willing to sacrifice for things that we're all in on. If you're not all in on something, you're not willing to sacrifice for it. And that's the case here. The reason that they were all in is because everybody's all in is because you had to sacrifice to be a follower of Jesus. It's possible today in Southern American Christian culture to be a, quote, follower of Jesus and it not cost you anything. I mean, can we be really honest that for many of us that have grown up in church and our families are Christian and our jobs are connected to Christian things, that it would cost more for us to give up on Christianity than to continue in Christianity? Like we'd have to, we'd have to, give, we'd have to give up everything we knew if we decided to quit Christianity. But for these folks, to follow Jesus cost them something. And yet they were still fully devoted I've heard that you Alabama folks take football pretty seriously. I don't know. Um, aren't you glad that's coming up? I'm ready. I'm ready for some college football. I don't know you guys are too. Um, my claim, Alabama claim to fame is that I grew up about five minutes from where Nick Saban grew up. My uncle played football with him, all that kind of stuff. Now, I don't want to cause any division here. Um, I even looked up, I looked up Auburn's coach's name. I had to look it up. I think he's a new guy, right? So you got Harson and Saban. Imagine that you are one of the one of the premier football players, high school football players in the country. And you get recruited by Saban or Harson to play 
in one of these places in front of 100,000 people at Bryant-Denny. And I looked up the name for Auburn Stadium, forget it already, but big 80-some thousand seats, right? And you're one of these premier players in, in, in the nation. You get to play here. Can you imagine how incredible that would be? I mean, for some of you, this would be the dream to, to play here. And so I want you to imagine that you roll in, you're a freshman, and, and you roll in on the first day of practice, and you run out on that field, and you start messing around. And, and you're throwing, you're trying, to, you're trying to kick field goals as trick shots. You're, you're, not, a, you're not a kicker. And you're, you're jumping around and fooling around and pushing people, and you're messing around. If you're just messing around on your first day of college football practice at Alabama or Auburn, what do you think these guys would say about it? I, you don't even want to think about what they'd say about it, right? It'd be a disaster. I mean, I've been around some tough West Virginia people in my life, and man, he's, he's right there up there with them. You don't, you don't mess around with stuff like that, right? If you are going to be one of the premier football players in the nation and play at a, a program like this, you've got to be all in, completely devoted, and there's no other option. And as I read Acts chapter 2 and keep reading through the book of Acts, it appears that the same is true. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus in the earliest days of the church, there is no other option but to be all in. And when people start messing around a little bit, like Ananias and Sapphira, things don't turn out very well. I mean, look at a couple more examples of how all in some folks were. In Acts chapter 4, for example, Peter and John have been arrested after preaching in the temple because of they've healed the lame man and they draw a crowd and they're told not to talk about it anymore. Their response, verse 19, Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, we're going to keep talking about Jesus because we saw a dead man alive again. We saw it. And we heard it with our own ears. We've got to keep talking about this regardless of what it costs us. You get to verse 29 of chapter 4, and I love this prayer. They, they've been told, stop talking about Jesus. And here's their prayer. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. In the face of, hey, stop talking about Jesus, their response is, Lord, help us to keep doing it. Help us to keep speaking your word with all boldness. You've got to be all in to pray a prayer like that in this context. You could skip over into chapter well, you could keep going in chapter 4, verses 32 to 35, how all in they are with one another and the way they share with one another. You could skip over to chapter 5. They're arrested again. They're beaten. And when they come out of the presence of the council after being beaten, verse 42 says, um, in chapter 5, verse 41 rather, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. You could keep reading about Stephen in chapter 6 and 7. You could go through the whole book of Acts and it becomes very obvious that for the earliest followers of Jesus, there was no other option but to be fully committed. Let me point you to one other passage where I think you see this to be the case. Skip over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. In context, it appears that Timothy, while in Ephesus, is starting to get shook up a little bit about the persecution he's facing, and maybe he's having 
I don't think he's having second thoughts, but he's not being as tough-minded as Paul expects him to be. In fact, if you skip back to chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, in verse 6 and 7, here's what Paul says to Timothy. Or verse 7, rather. We'll start in 6. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands, my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Verse 8. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So it appears that, that Timothy's being a little bit timid. Maybe he's scared of the suffering that's going to come because of his position as a leader in this church in Ephesus. And you know that Ephesus is not a place, an easy place to be a Christian. You don't believe that? Go read Acts chapter 19. And what happens to Paul because of what he does in Ephesus? This is a tough place. And Paul says to Timothy, listen, it's time for you to, it's time for you to get to the next level in your faith. And then you get to chapter 2, and I think he describes what that looks like with three really beautiful illustrations. Look in verse 1 of chapter 2. We're in 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering. We just read that phrase in chapter 1, verse 8. He says, but share in suffering. And so again, Timothy appears to need to be spurred on to face some of the difficulties he's going to face. And then he gives three illustrations. So verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier, verse 4, gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So Paul brings up the illustration of a soldier. Now, Using warfare and soldiering as an illustration is nothing new to Paul, and he uses it in different ways in different places. Here his point seems to be, listen, a soldier is tough-minded and devoted completely to his role and to his job. Timothy, you got to be the same way. For in the ancient world, at least in the Roman Empire, a Roman soldier, when they became a Roman soldier, it was a full commitment to use the language of the topic I've been given tonight. You were in for 20 years, you couldn't marry, and you were sent to the edges of the empire sometime to face rebellions and to face some of the uprisings that happened on those, in those situations. And if you were going to be a Roman soldier, there was no messing around. You had to be completely devoted. You had to be all in. And Paul says to Timothy, and by extension to all of us, a follower of Jesus must be like a soldier completely devoted, regardless of the distractions that come around, regardless of all of the choices that one could make among priorities, the soldier stays focused on his role. Because he's got to please the one who enlisted him, he said. We all get a similar picture today, right? If you know someone in the military, you know how devoted they are. You know that they're all in regardless of the circumstances. And so, Paul says through Timothy, Timothy to us, hey, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, it means being all in regardless of the circumstances. But then he gives another example. Look at verse 5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now that's kind of a weird one. Paul uses sports language elsewhere in, in his letters to Timothy. And he talks about athletics. Here's kind of a, a weird one. He says someone who who plays a game, who competes in the Olympics, for example, is going to compete according to the rules. Now, we know 
you don't, have to, you don't have to spend a lot of time on this, that an athlete who makes it to the Olympic level, and we're just kind of coming out of this as a culture and watching it on TV, you've got to be all in, right? But what's Paul talking about when he says they've got to compete according to the rules? And we're like, well, of course they have to compete according to the rules, because if you don't compete according to the rules, you're going to get kicked out of the competition. We get that. Here's likely what Paul is talking about. For someone to compete in the ancient Olympics, they actually had to sign their name on something that said that they had spent the past nine months completely devoted to training for that event. And that was to protect the integrity of the event, not lower the level at which people performed. And so to ensure that everybody performed at the highest level, they actually had to commit to the fact that they had been fully devoted and they had followed the rules and the discipline of their sport for several months. And the only way they were going to be successful is if they had actually done that. Now, you know that a lot of our Olympic athletes have been dedicated to the rules and the discipline of their sport for years. Sometimes since childhood. Like they get sent to these camps and, and facilities and from childhood they've been completely dedicated to this. Professional athletes have to give certain things up. There's certain things they can't be involved in. Because they've got to compete according to the rules of training or the rules of their team. And man, over the past year or so, with all of the restrictions placed on athletes, they've been in, in bubbles and there's certain things they couldn't do. It's pretty serious stuff, right? To compete at the highest level, there is a rule of discipline that the athlete must attain to to be successful. And I think Paul is saying to Timothy, listen, Timothy, the same is true for you. Just like that athlete is all in and disciplined, you've got to do the same thing. And then he gives one more example of this. Look at verse, verse 6. He says, It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. And he says, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. In other words, here's the three images. Think about it, Timothy. Now, this almost sounds like a works-based salvation, verse 6. Hardworking farmer has the first share of the crops. If you work really hard, you get the first reward. Clearly, Paul is not saying the harder you work, the more deserving of salvation you are. None of us can ever earn it. That's works-based salvation. That's, that's heresy. But as followers of Jesus who's been, who have been given the gift of salvation, our response should be to work and to work hard and labor for the Lord. And the images of a farmer who does not receive a good reward from, from his labor unless he works hard. Now, I grew up like I said, in West Virginia, where there's no flat spot big enough to, to have a farm. And so I didn't grow up around farmers, but I remember my first ministry out of, out of college, out of undergrad, there was a pig farmer in our local church. And I will never forget how hard that man worked. Now, he, was, he, had, he had gotten a, a degree in farming. That's not, I don't think you get a degree in farming, but whatever the name is for that, that degree. I mean, he had done his work. He'd gotten the education, agricultural something, right? And I still remember he would, he'd go home from church on, he'd get up early, early on Sunday morning. I remember Sunday routine. He'd get up early, early on Sunday morning, do all the stuff. It was a large pig farm. He would work until church time, come to church. He would go home that afternoon, eat some lunch, work into the afternoon before coming back to church that night. And then at times he would go back after Sunday night church and he had more work to do. Farmers are about as hardworking as they come, right? That's what it takes to be successful. Now, here's what I think Paul is saying. I think Paul's saying to Timothy, listen, a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer are all vivid images of full commitment. 
To be successful in any one of those three positions, you've got to be all in on what you do. There's no other, no other excuses. There's nothing else you can do. You've got to be completely committed. And so as I think about what it looks like then for a Christian to live in a, a virtual world but be fully committed, and I think about what happens in Acts chapter 2 and all the book of Acts, and I think about what Paul says here in 2 Timothy chapter 2. It's as if Scripture is pointing us to understand that for followers of Jesus, the only option for Christians in Acts and the only option for Timothy, and by extension the only option for us, is that, is that we've got to be all in. We've got to be fully committed. And so here's the one thing I hope you hear tonight, if you hear nothing else, and it's almost a rhyme, so maybe you can remember it. What I want you to remember is this, all in is the only option. All in is the only option. There is no such thing as an uncommitted Christian. That's an oxymoron. It's not possible. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus in a world with all sorts of options, especially in the virtual world, the only real option for followers of Jesus is to be all in. All in is the only option. So what does that look like? Really quickly, in the next 10 minutes or so, how do we live this out? What's it going to look like for followers of Jesus to really be all in in a virtual world? Well, here's the first thing I would suggest. I would suggest that you've got to build a solid foundation. And what I mean by that is personally, you have to take responsibility for your spiritual welfare and your spiritual growth and build a solid spiritual foundation. You want to know why you need to do that? This church needs you to do that. The mission of God needs you to build a solid foundation. Your neighbors and this community needs you to build a solid foundation spiritually because a, a strong and healthy me spiritually leads to a strong and healthy church. Let that sink in for a minute. What if none of us take our own personal spiritual foundation seriously as a church? What if all of us are kind of half-heartedly in and we're just kind of doing our thing? We're not real. What, if, what if everybody's kind of halfway in? and not fully devoted to their own spiritual growth. What's this church going to look like? It's not going to be a strong church. Now, I know that everybody has ups and downs, but if most of us go all in and build a solid foundation and take our own spiritual welfare and relationship with God very seriously, what's this church going to look like? Strong and healthy me is going to lead to a strong and healthy church, and a whole bunch of strong and healthy Christians is going to lead to a really strong and healthy church. So as you're building, as you're going all in for your faith and commitment to this church, what do you look like spiritually? And I don't know, this may not be the best way to think about it, but spiritually, what do you look like? Do you look like a poor beggar child or a strong, healthy lumberjack? Now, I know the ladies in the house are like, I don't want to look like a strong, healthy lumberjack. I get it. Work with me here. Whatever strength looks like to you spiritually which one of these describe you? Now, probably most of us are somewhere in the middle. But don't we have all of the tools and capabilities to look like, to be a picture of strength spiritually? Hasn't God given us everything we need to look like that? Absolutely. You've got to build a solid foundation if you're going to go all in for in commitment to the Lord and to His church. But I also would suggest if you're going to go all in, what's that going to look like? We've got to maximize the use of virtual tools for the glory of God. Now, 
conversation like this sounds like we're saying, hey, this virtual stuff has messed us up and we can't be all in. It's hard to be committed now because of all this. No, that's not what we're saying. It presents some challenges, but if you're going to be all in in a virtual world, it means you're going to use everything that God has given us to serve others and to connect to others. Now, we've got to connect to one another in real and personal and physical ways, but aren't the tools that God has given us really valuable ways to connect? We can share our lives in ways that we've never been able to share before. And I can be in contact with any of my brothers and sisters in Christ at any moment. I can go to far off places in the world and still send a text. So my challenge to you is to look for ways to connect and be committed to your brothers and sisters in Christ using these virtual tools. Once a week. What would it look like for you once a week to say, okay, what can I do to connect with somebody else? Who can I send a text to? Who can I send a Facebook message to? Use these virtual tools for the glory of God. Further, if all in is really the only option, what's it going to look like? It means that I'm going to get involved because there's no such thing as spectator Christianity. See, we used to talk about spectator Christianity, something like this. We would say, all right, spectator Christianity means that I'm going to show up at church. I'm going to pay, pray, get out of the way, and let the preacher and the church leaders do the stuff. And I'm just, they're the players on the field. I'm kind of off in the stands, in the bleachers, watching, letting them do their thing, getting what I can. Now things have shifted a little bit. Spectator Christianity means, well, I'm going to, I'm going to watch online. I'm going to like, follow, share. Maybe give online, but I'm not really going to be involved or get committed, or too committed at least. Listen, there's no such thing as spectator Christianity. In fact, like I said earlier, it's kind of a, an uncommitted church member. That's an oxymoron. If you're going to be a church member, it means you're completely committed. You are a part of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you're one of the members of the body, and every member has a role to play. Every member has a role to play. And so one of our daily prayers, or at least regular prayers, should be something like this. Lord, help me to see what I can do to serve, to serve my church. The question should never be, Lord, should I serve my church? No. The question should always be, how can I serve my church? And if you don't know how to get involved, if maybe you're new here, you feel kind of disconnected, and you want to be more all in with this local body of believers and get involved, then talk to one of the leaders. I'm pretty sure, I don't know, I'm pretty sure they would be thrilled if you came to them and say, you know, I want to be more all in. I want to be more devoted and, and more involved in this local church. Can you help me do that? I don't know a church leader. Well, there's Go Mountaineers. Um, sorry about that. Tell, tell people to turn their phones off and the preacher doesn't do it. Um, I should be more involved in this, right? So get involved, right? No such thing as spectator Christianity. And then last, I'll say this, be physically present. I know that we are in weird times. And being physically present in one another's lives has been challenging and will continue to be challenging. And I recognize that as people in your church have struggled and maybe been in the hospital, we haven't been able to be physically present with one another like we once have. And that's, that's really hard. But but things have, as things change, recognizing, okay, this is challenging. Things aren't like they, like they have been. We need to remember that we've got to get back into each other's lives because that's what commitment is. Commitment demands 
that we be physically present with the local body of believers that we're involved in and in one another's lives. The reason is we're family, right? And family is physically connected. They are physically involved in one another's lives. They're physically present when they can be. If you were in a situation over the past year and a half where you could not be physically present in a family member's lives, I'm guessing it broke your heart. Because I know that there were a lot of people like that, and they couldn't see grandparents, and people were sick, and they couldn't be in the hospital, or, or they were having babies and couldn't be. It was awful, and people's hearts were broken because they could not be physically connected with their family. I hope that the fact that we couldn't be physically or as physically connected as a church as we once had been broke your heart too. Because we're family. Who do you go all in for? I think most of us would be like, you, you want to know who I go all in for? I go all in for my family. Most people, in fact, you mess, you mess with somebody's family, we're like, all right, I, I know I'm a Christian, but you, you don't mess with my family now, right? We go all in for our family. Listen, we are family. We're family. And if we are family, then we've got to be all in with one another and for one another. And part of that means being physically present in one another's lives. You can't just be a family virtually. You can't. Now, in difficult times, we do the best we can, and we've done that over the past year and a half. But ultimately, if we're family, we're going to be engaged in one another's lives. And that means we're going to be physically present in one another's lives. And that means real, personal relationships. Not just virtual ones. Because I think about the real people that have been engaged in my life, and I've just got too many stories to tell. I think about my Christian family that's been there and been real in my life. And I think about Harold and Chris. And we were in there, felt like we were in their home every Sunday night growing up. And I remember when my family faced a difficult time seven or eight years ago. Their entire family said, we're not buying Christmas presents for one another. We're going we're gonna to help them with that. I think about real people in my life like, like Dick, who was our high school, junior high and high school Bible class teacher growing up. We didn't have money for youth ministers growing up, and so somebody just had to do it. He did it, I remember from 7th grade through 12th grade, taught our teenage class, never got a break, never got a dime, was just all in impacted my life in significant ways. I think about the real people in my life, like, like Craig. My senior year, before my senior year of college, I forgot to change the oil in my car, and I blew my engine up like a dummy. And I couldn't get back to, to Fried Hardeman. And Craig, before the word was used, he, he crowdsourced, right? And he, he went around, and he, he talked to other people, found an engine that would fit in my old clunky car, and made sure I could make it back to college. Now think about Lois, who was very poor and very different. But every time that I went back to my home church through college, she'd hand me a $5 bill for gas and a bag of cookies. Those are real people physically present in my life that have changed my life for the better. And it could make a long list, right? I could think about Miss Retha, the very first person I met at the first place that I worked out of college was also the very first 
funeral I preached. Nothing about Miss Ruby who found out that after my wife was working a 12-hour shift as a nurse on Thanksgiving Day and we weren't going to be able to get Thanksgiving dinner until we drove several hours to a family member's house. She was just so bothered by that, she brought us Thanksgiving dinner. And I think about, I think about Aaron, who I hadn't seen him for years, but when we were going through that difficult time, man, he called every month just to talk because he wanted to check on us. And I think about Mike and Devana, who drove 10 hours for a one-hour funeral. If you've grown up in church, you could tell stories like that over and over and over again of people, not virtual people, not friends on Facebook, but real people who are physically present in our lives and change our lives. And you can't imagine life without them. Because we're family. And you can't do that just virtually. You see, for followers of Jesus, all in is the only option. We've got a million options that we can choose from in our virtual world, but all in is the only option. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for going all in for us um, when we needed you completely and we were lost in sin. Thank you for going all in. Uh, Father, forgive us for times when we have not been as fully committed as we need to be. Uh, Father, we pray that over the past year, what we've experienced has not been a detriment to our commitment to you and our commitment to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if it has, Father, remind us to go all in. Help us to be involved in our local congregation. I know I'm speaking to a Wednesday night crowd, likely the most involved people here. But Father, remind us all that we're family and that we must be involved in one another's lives and we must be fully committed to this local body of believers. Uh, forgive us when we haven't done that well. Thank you for Jesus who went all in for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.